0: It's a new term, might be a bit of a new start, that might fit. the new, new term might mean different things to different people. Now if you're going back to sc- school, school, that might mean something very exciting, it might mean something, Aidan's look at me means, is suggesting it's not that exciting. If you're not going back to school, you might think new term, what's really all that about? It doesn't have quite the same significance, but we are coming out of the summer holidays into the autumn term, into the into Sept- September started, has not it? Into September and into the autumn, and in one sense, for us as a church, there's a sense of a new season, a new start as well. So, just to introduce it week by week, when we're at the Jubilee Centre, we're going to be looking at, as we've told you a little bit, uh, something of our foundations as the people of God, Look, using the Apostles' Creed to help us in looking at some of the foundational truths this is what is true and has been true all the way through this is what we are built on as a people as well as looking some maybe some big issues on some sunday evenings as well so it's an important time and an exciting time how are we building as a people what are we building on what are the foundations like Maybe foundations and back to basics and the key things don't actually sound that exciting. But actually, foundations can sound a bit dull. They're the hidden things that we kind of put down and then forget about them. But actually, the reality is this stuff is really exciting. This stuff is really wonderful when we unpack it and get into it. This is the truth that God has given us. So we're going to be doing that. Uh, On Sundays at the Jubilee Centre, I encourage you, let's be there, Uh, and and in our small groups as well, we're going to be looking at all that stuff. But as we have been told, uh, as we've already said, as, uh, as it was wonderfully guessed by Alfie, we are going to be looking at the book of Ruth. Just felt really stirred, actually, as we are here on a Sunday once a month in Shirecliff, alongside what we're going to be looking at at the Jubilee Centre to get into the Bible together, to look at a, a book of the Bible that just speaks of so much. Uh, so I've been really excited looking at the book of Ruth. So what, what, do we do, what do we know about the book of Ruth? It's an Old Testament story. We're told at the very beginning of it. Nathan I'll let you know. We're not getting there quite yet. We're almost there. Nath's Nath been poised since I stood up. Sorry, I should have told you a minute ago. Um, we're told right at the beginning of Ruth it's set in the time of the judges and and we see if we read the book of judges we can see that's after God's people have settled in the promised land and before they ask for and get a king and we read that it's a really turbulent time it's, it's it's up and down as Julie was just talking about even as she looked through back through her life it's up and down we can see a roller coaster all the way through but the time of the judges certainly was up and down. We read lots of times through the book of Judges of things going drastically wrong. We see God having to pour out judgment on his people. And then he hears, hears their cry to him and he comes and rescues them. Usually by sending, as the name of the book suggests, raising up a judge over his people who will rescue them and help them. We read of stories of people like Deborah and Gideon and Ehud. In fact, we read some pretty grisly stories in the book of Judges. You can have a look when you go home at what happened. Where does Ehud's sword end up? Or you could find out where Jael's tent peg ends up. I'm not going to tell you right now. This is a family show. But there's some really grisly, horrible things as to how. As the people of God are struggling, and then they're rescued, and God comes, and He steps in and helps them. But that it's grisly, it's turbulent, it's sad. It's a time when the nation keeps turning away from God, despite the incredible things in their past. The nation, the people of God, turning away from the truth. We see the closing verse of Judges. In Judges 21 verse 25, it says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. They just did what they wanted. They did what they thought was right. They tried to work it out for themselves. And as we see through all the chapters of it, that's a bit of a mess. And Perhaps we could ask the question, well, do we recognize any of that today? A nation that's turned from God. A people who are working things out, well, I will do what I see fit. Very key for us. But in the midst of this, or directly after it, in the biblical order, we're presented with this story. And the book of Ruth focuses on one regular family. As we look, we see one family, a man called Elimelech and his wife Naomi. Naomi. And their sons, Marlon and Killian. And as the story progresses, we find that their sons, uh, marry these two women, Orpah and Ruth. We see an ordinary family trying to survive. As we look through this book, we see no massive exploits, no conquered kingdoms, no massive revival of people, loads of people coming to God, we see no obvious glittery miracles. In fact, what we see is lots of pain and hardship, and we see a lot of despair and struggle. So why is it there, and why would we want to look at it? Well, actually, as we get into this book, what we see through this family is primarily we see Or we see these things. We see Ruth and her beautiful, incredible faith and her faithfulness in the midst of severe hardship. We see, as we look in closely, the grace and mercy of God. We see, even through all the pain and hardship and suffering, the sovereign hand of God and his control over all circumstances. And as the story goes on, what we see is wonderful redemption and restoration. Again, it's not glitzy and glamorous. It's not some kind of massive shooting shooting star in the sky. But God, in and through one family, brings amazing redemption and restoration, which, as we will see, fits hugely into the big picture of his master plan for salvation of the world. So that's why we're going to the book of Ruth. And today, in our remaining time, we'll have a look at chapter 1, bit by bit. So we can have the first bit, Nate. <laughs> there you go. Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. I'll try and find it as well. Yeah, there we are. Ruth chapter one. Going to start by reading we're gonna look at it bit by bit. So I'm gonna start by reading verses one to five of chapter one. Here we are. In those in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Killian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Killian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay. To be honest, as I read that, I could imagine... Forgive me that this is what I imagined. I could imagine in the Lego movie, there's that character Metalbeard. And I could imagine Metalbeard jumping up onto the stage... Me name's Metalbeard and I'll tell you me tale of woe. And it will be nothing on this. Metalbeard does tell a story of woe, of going to the big Lego tower where President Business is and barely escaping alive, something like that. But as as we read these verses, Metalbeard's got nothing on Naomi. Metalbeard's got nothing on Naomi and Ruth and Orpah. We are hit by a wall of hardship. This is a serious tale of woe. One thing after another after another. We see Naomi particularly hit by famine. Her family uprooted. Then a tale of death, followed by death, followed by death. She's in a foreign land. She's lost her husband and both of her sons. In a time particularly where a widow left on her own is in massive trouble and she's now in a foreign land having left because of a famine, left without husband or sons. We see Ruth and Orpah who have married into this family now left without their husbands either. It's a tragic situation but it's the context for all that follows. And just almost as an aside, but just to start here, this is real. We will face hardship. We've heard of it even this morning. We will face illness. We might face recessions or job losses. We might face relational tensions, bereavement, as well as persecution more actively and openly. They're all realities in this world. Whether we could point and look at these verses and say, well, is, is this God's judgment? Is this caused by other people? Is this the simple result of being in a fallen world? Or even could we argue, is this somehow self-inflicted? Elimelech, why did you go to Moab in the first place? Well, he was, I'm escaping from the famine. Even if we could kind of argue all of these things, it just looks so unfair happens so notwithstanding any sense where you could go maybe you've made some bad choices in the past this feels so hard and totally unfair Naomi, Orpah and Ruth are facing disaster how did we end up here how did we end up here but hardship in all its forms there's a reality in this world, and we, as the people of God, are not immune from it. As I know people in this room will know only too well. We could read the words of Jesus in John 16, verse 33 In this world, you will have trouble. There you go. We could read the word of the psalmist of David in Psalm 34 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We're not immune from the suffering and trouble of the world. And Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah certainly aren't either. They're certainly facing trouble. Well, what will they do now as the story moves on? What do we read in verse 6? They're in this horrible situation. In verse 6, we read this. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. We focus in on Naomi. And as the story moves on, we see Naomi, along with Orpah and Ruth, they've got nothing. It's a huge problem for them in the society of the time. three widows left, who will support them? Who will protect them? To be honest, from our standpoint of the 21st century, it's a bigger disaster than we can probably appreciate. In the midst of it, it's a source of real shame for Naomi. I'm widowed and childless. Who will take on my family line? I am, I've got nothing. And yet into the midst of this desperate situation Naomi gets the news God has provided food for his people in the promised land. Perhaps Bethlehem is finally living up to its name again as the house of bread. There's food. She decides to return home. Even as we look there A brave decision, perhaps even a repentant decision. We came here, everything's gone wrong, but I'm going to go home. I'm going to go back to where I've come from. I'm going to go back to the land which our God gave us. In the depths, in a bad place, in the place of feeling far from God, will we make those brave, repentant decisions? Come back to him. Come back to him. If you're feeling anywhere like that today, you can come to God today. But what do we see? They're packing up to go home. Naomi's made this decision, we're going to go back to Judah. Verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husband and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons that could become your husband's? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. and We'll pause there. You can see the desperation of the situation. Naomi sets out. Ruth, Orpah, if you come with me, there is nothing for you. There is nothing for you if you come with me. And in one sense, we need to cut need context for that. need to understand the situation of the time again. She starts talking about having another husband and having more children and 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 working that out. And we might think, what's she talking about? Why, why, why is that the point? But it speaks of the culture of the time and the law. that widows would be provided for, that if a a man died and left a widow, then his brother had the responsibility to marry his widow, to carry on the family line, but to, to look after and care for the widow that he'd left behind. And Naomi speaks into this, look, look, I haven't got any more children. I haven't got any more sons. There's no one who could be that person to you. So don't think about coming with me. There's nothing for you there. And the reality for her is, and therefore I have got nothing. Have I labored the point enough? This is desperate. This is a time of desperate, desperation for this family. I'll ask the question how do we respond? in times of hardship, trial, and downright disaster. Maybe I'll ask another question. What do we think of Naomi's response? Actually, there's a lot in Naomi's response that is quite impressive. We can see and we can pull out, she is in despair, true. There's a hopelessness that is creeping in, true. And yet, in the midst of this, firstly what we see is her love for Ruth and Orpah. In the midst of her own despair and lack of hope for herself, what does Naomi focus her mind on? You can have better. I can help you. Ruth and Orpah, there is a way for you. May the Lord show you kindness. As you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me, may the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the home of another husband. Turn back, go back to your families, go back to your own people and find a new life. There is hope for you. It's so easy in our own hardship and despair to end up absorbed with thinking of ourselves and what? And the hardship for ourselves, or how am I going to get out of this? What's going to happen? And yet, amazingly, Naomi's attention is turned to, "No, I've got to somehow provide for you two. I can give you hope. I can give you a way. May the Lord show you kindness." It's a very powerful Hebrew word, hesed. There's a sense of deep faith and faithfulness and mercy shown to someone that. Saying, you, you, you've shown me great faithfulness. You've shown great faithfulness and loyalty to your husband and to me. Now may God show you the same. Kindness in our modern language can sound a bit weak in comparison, but this is the, this is the depths of what Naomi is praying for them. She has love for her daughters-in-law. She also, we can see her underlying faith in the sovereignty of God. It comes out in an interesting way. But she recognises the sovereignty of God, that he is in control. Despite the fact that in that she can only see despair and bitterness. And it leads her to saying things like, the Lord's hand has turned against me. And later on in the chapter, the Lord has brought me back empty when they arrived back in Bethlehem. Spoilers. And the Lord has afflicted me and brought misfortune upon me. But there is truth here. Naomi gets hold of the fact she doesn't allow herself to somehow claim that God in the midst of all of this has been taken by surprise. That he was somehow powerless in this situation. That somehow, well, God just popped out and turned his back for a minute and all this disaster happened and now God's having to pick up the pieces somehow. Now Naomi, maybe perhaps similarly to Job, can understand and cry out, no, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He is in control, even in the midst of the deepest and darkest times. It is tempting in times of serious trial and hardship to doubt God. Perhaps most seriously, to doubt that He is really there. In fact, if I don't know if this is completely true right now, but it's certainly been true over the last few years. If you see videos or hear people talking, many would articulate that the existence of suffering in this world is a barrier to any kind of belief in any kind of all-powerful and all-loving God. How can you believe that there's a God who's all-powerful and all-loving when you see all the suffering around you? Or how could I believe that there's a God out there who loves me and is all, and is so powerful as you claim he is when this has happened to me or to my family or to my loved ones? It's easy to doubt that he is really there. Or if we accept that he's there to doubt that he really is in control, that we can so easily see suffering as a time where God has popped out for a bit. Maybe he's fallen asleep. Maybe at least he's been caught off guard somehow and had his plans interrupted and now, well, hopefully he can pick up the pieces. Alternatively, we can end up doubting God's goodness. We can end up blaming God. You've got it wrong, God. How can you be good and yet this has happened? Yet, actually the wonderful example of Naomi, maybe she doesn't get everything right here, but the wonderful example is that she recognizes God is always in control. When things are tough, when pain and hardship hit, he isn't taken by surprise. He hasn't been caught off guard. He hasn't popped out for a minute. He's always in control and he is always good Naomi recognizes however this has worked out God is always in always at work in the midst of all of it whether we can fully understand it or not God who is always good is always in control And Naomi, to her credit, holds on to this belief in an all-powerful, all-sovereign, all-good God. And yet, in the midst of that, she can't see any hope. She sees no hope, no possibility of gift or of redemption for her, only bitterness and hopelessness. As she concludes, the Lord's against me. It's so easy to let bitterness creep in and to descend into hopelessness. But if Naomi could only have seen the mercy of God that was being worked out in preserving her, in bringing about a turning around of her situation, we get the advantage of seeing what's next, or what's coming. Even through this darkest of times. And we'll come back to that. Because as we move on, we're about to see an incredible and yet seemingly simple step of God's mercy and providence right here. It comes about as we read on in Ruth's beautiful decision of faith. Verse 14 Naomi's just laid this all out to them, and at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother in law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister in law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, She stopped urging her. We see Ruth's beautiful, baffling, wonderful decision. And actually, as we look at it, we see God's, well, if we we start to look forward, we see God's providential mercy to Naomi. But we see, we see a choice that's laid out. And the choice appears to be this. Stay here in your own country, with your own family, with hope for a husband, with hope for a future, with hope for a home, with hope for a life, on the one hand. Or come with me where there's nothing for you. Naomi's message is clear there's no hope for me and nothing for you if you come with me but you have a future if you stay here and we see and we're not going to focus particularly on Orpah today but she reluctantly decides to go back home so we're left with Ruth faced with this seeming choice homeland people family, hope, life, possible husband, a future. Or go with your mother-in-law to a strange land, to no one you know, to no prospect of family, to no prospect of a husband, to no prospect of any kind of life with seemingly nothing for herself. And faced with this choice, we see Ruth's incredible response. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death or if anything but death separates you and me. I'm coming with you. I'm coming with you. I, I, I think I will push to the point that this is an utterly beautiful moment in scripture. I will choose to follow you and your God. I will come to the place of seemingly no hope. I will give up everything for this. To be with you and I choose your God. In fact, in one sense, it's a picture of salvation. Of being born again. To count all else as loss compared to the joy of knowing you. It might make no sense to those around you. It might. Ruth's choice looks utterly bizarre in a worldly sense. What's in this for you, Ruth? Yet she says, no, I give it all for this. It's a picture of salvation. I am, give, I, no. Anything else that could be a distraction, anything else that seems like it could be good, no. None of it's good compared to the joy of knowing Jesus. But it's also an incredible example and picture of following God wholeheartedly in a world that just doesn't get it. Will we follow God when it seems like there's nothing in it for us? Will we go somewhere or stay somewhere where it seems to make no sense in a worldly sense? Will we give up the opportunity? Will we give up the decision that makes sense in the world's eyes. Well, look, there's, there's great prospects for you there. There's, there's a great, there's something there. And yet you can hear, no, God's saying, this is where I'm meant to be. Will we follow God where the alternative looks so much better, so much more comfortable, so much more common sense? And where compromise could seem so appealing. That could be impersonal choices for us to make. It could mean decisions in workplaces in turning down or leaving jobs it could be in terms of passing up opportunities it could be choosing to live in places that the world would say why what are you doing there why are you going there but it could also be as a church or as, as individual christians standing firm on truth even as we look at it, this term, foundational truths of the gospel in a nation that is progressively slipping from the truth of the word. And the world may say, why are you doing that? There could have been a whole community looking in on Ruth and saying, what are you doing? They say, look, come over here, it's far more comfortable, there's far more hope, there's far more for you. Perhaps even, well, we used to, Christians used to believe that, but no, come on, we've moved on from that now. We're we're so much more uh, enlightened these days. Even, how can you hold to that and say that? That's so hateful. Perhaps even we could be faced with that kind of thought of, look, your sister understands your sister's got it. Naomi's convinced her this is the place for you. Just just compromise on it a little. Come over here. Maybe we see other Christians other churches compromising on things. And in humility we don't want to go oh you're wrong. But dear friends we don't want to compromise on the truth. Despite the fact that the world will say, come on, it makes sense in this day and age, in this world today. Perhaps even there'll be more opportunity for you. You can have more impact if you move in this direction. But let me put it to you that Ruth's beautiful example says, no, I am going to faithfully stand with you. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Whether we're facing individual decisions, whether we're facing the the reality of the changing culture of our times. Will we make the decision to faithfully stand on the word of God, even when it looks like there's nothing in it for us? Your God will be my God, your people will be my people. A beautiful decision. And so Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem and this is where we close. We've seen Naomi so much to admire about her reaction in the face of hardship. We've seen Ruth and her beautiful decision of faith. Actually, if we return to Bethlehem, we'll look at, actually, what's God doing here? And so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Okay, so they return and Naomi is downcast. The town has stirred to see her, but her despair is clear. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. I'm no longer pleasant but bitter. The Lord has afflicted me and I'm empty. Now ask us the question, do we see God's mercy, grace and provision in the best and in the worst of times? Earlier on I was praising Naomi for, her, for, not her, uh, for, her, for the fact that she didn't doubt God's sovereignty and holiness. But it appears she cannot see his provision. In fact, you could imagine God speaking up at this moment. Naomi, wait. Naomi, wait. Can't you see how I've been with you? How I've seen you through the famine. It didn't work out the way you expected, but I've seen you through. And through all the hardships that you faced, and i brought you back to your home. Just as the barley harvest is about to begin. Naomi, see what I can yet do. See that I have kept you safe. Through all the hideous roller coaster that you're on, I am here and I'm at work. Perhaps you could imagine Naomi pushing back, but God, I'm empty. Everything is gone. And perhaps God would push back again. No, not quite, Naomi. You've got Ruth. Wait and see what I am about to do through her. There is more for you here than you know or can understand at this moment. You see, we could ask the question, do we see all that we have in him? Even in the worst of times, do we see all that we have been given in him? And the ways he's providing, even when we cannot see it at all. We sing that song sometimes. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Oh, so, so, so much we need to remind ourselves of it. God's at work. He's still at work. Did you realize he saw us through that? It felt hideous at the time, but we're here. How easy it is. How easy it can be to lose hope. Yet the reality is that the sovereign God that Naomi recognizes is the one who can and will redeem any situation. He's the one who is always at work even when we don't see it, even if it's not in the way we would choose. You see, the sovereignty of God that she is professing is the source of her hope. but how easy it is in the midst of trouble to miss the glimmers of God's grace and his provision for us Naomi I brought you home and you'll only begin to see what a blessing Ruth is going to be to you I brought you home just in time for the barley harvest and you're only going to see in the future how much of a blessing that's going to be to you Naomi, you think you've got nothing and yet I am, going to, I am already weaving you into the biggest story that I have ever told. Even when we don't see it, God's working. Earlier I read John 16, 33 and Psalm 30, 14, 34, 19 and I deliberately cut them off. So let's read them in full. John 16. And verse 33, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says this. He says that he's told them all these things that he's just told them, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. He's in control. He's done it. He is with us. In Psalm 34, David does indeed say that the righteous face all sorts of trials or something like that. That was a bad paraphrase. Psalm 34, 19. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. God is at work. It doesn't mean that we're not going to face troubles. It doesn't mean that we're not going to face trials. It doesn't mean that they'll all work out in the way that we would like them to. But both of those verses could point to the reality that Paul so wonderfully kind of, uh, expounds in Romans chapter 8. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And Paul lists some pretty big things in, that, in those verses. In Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, as it's written, for your sake we face death all day long, we're considered cheap to be slaughtered. He says, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. This has all come through even before I started speaking. As Terry read Psalm 23, The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not be in want. What's it saying that? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We sang the song, he's the one who turns graves into gardens, who turns seas into highways, the one who turns our mourning into dancing. I think I could reference all the different things were shared. I'm saying all, but once I wrote down, that means I might have missed something. But we're called to get on the train. We're told the gates are open to come into the place of safety and peace. We're told that he is the one who can bring glory from shame. Naomi arrives back with Ruth at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's an innocuous phrase. At the beginning of the barley harvest, okay. But that's just in time for God to work out a great work of redeeming this hopeless situation. We can't see it. Even as I read that line, I can't see why that's going to work it out. But God is at work. And as I read the following chapters, I can see, oh, that's what you were doing, God. That's what you were doing, God. If we can't see it, we can't grasp it, yet he is bringing it about to his glory and their good. So let's believe him. Let's trust him. Let's expect and know whether we can see it clearly or not that he is about a great work. This term, this week, as we start new school years, new schools, as we Maybe come out of what might have still been a bit of a disrupted holiday time, even if it's not related around the school holidays. And into a new term. God is in control. He is powerful enough and he is good enough. I. He is all powerful and he is all good. And he is always working for his glory and working his good in us. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray and we'll respond. Father God, I, I thank you that your Bible is big enough to include this story. Lord, you don't just leap over, well, this is, what happening, this is what was happening with the whole nation. This is what was happening with the judges and then they had no king and now we can look at the time when they had a king. No, we are going to look at Ruth and Naomi, and their family, and later in the story, Boaz, and all that you're going to do through seemingly one ordinary family, but you are at work. You care for them. Lord, thank you that we see, even in looking at it, Lord, you care for us. Lord, you care for Naomi, and for Ruth, and for Orpah, Lord you care for your people and we may not understand it all the time but you are always at work for your glory and you are working in all things for the good of those who love you Lord we can catch ourselves up so easily on that well then why has this happened I can't see it here so is it really true And Lord, there can be incredible pain and hurt that can cloud our eyes from this truth. Lord, I just pray for all of us now, Lord, that you would meet with us. Lord, come and minister to us. Lord, come and bring... Lord, come and do what you need to do. Lord, I don't pretend to even understand what different people are going through and have gone through i can't imagine what it was like for ruth and for naomi and for orpah making that decision in that land having faced trial upon trial upon trial upon trial and now we're left with nothing lord it's easy to say yeah but lord we just want to trust you but lord i pray you'd help us where we all are to be those who find comfort And help in the wonderful truth that you are in control and you are good. Lord, come meet with us as we sing, as we respond. Lord, let our expectation be lifted. Let faith arise in us to expect. Lord, you will meet with us as we call on your name. Holy Spirit, come and minister to us. be those who get on and stay on that train. Lord, we would be those that are freed from shame. Lord, I pray that you would be lifting off shame today. Lord, even as Catherine brought that word before, Lord, lift off shame. Lord, as the writer of the Hebrews encourages us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, Lord, I pray, Lord, would you help us to do that? Lord, that we may see you and follow you, that we may run this race with perseverance. Lord, lift our eyes again, even now. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's stand and sing.